0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. We have allowed ourselves to become so disconnected and ignorant about something that is as intimate as the food that we eat. Be prepared to grow your own... For victory, God said, "I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadow lark." So God made a farmer. Hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbrough, and glad you're back with me again this week. And hey, if you're new to the show, uh, we have a kind of a a mixed format of interviews, and sometimes we have uh, topical shows. And today, I'm going to be doing a a Q&A episode where uh, I've had some folks in the homestead front porch ask some questions. And I'm going to do my best to answer them or just give my thoughts and opinions on them. And I always enjoy episodes like that because, you know, it's the episodes that that you want uh, because you're the ones asking the questions. So I always like to do those, and I have a lot of fun answering them. And even if it's something I don't know a ton about, I might give you my opinion about it or... Or I might pass it on to somebody else uh, and have them come on the episode and answer it at a later time if it's something I just don't know anything about. So those are always fun episodes. And today we're going to talk about a few different things. I'm going to cover some uh, uh, information on seed starting. Uh, Someone asked about that. And uh, someone asked about when to add compost to their garden. And I thought that was a good question. Uh, Also, um, someone wanted some information on health insurance for self-employed uh, family. And you know, I put it out there, ask whatever you want. And maybe that doesn't sound like a homesteading question, but it absolutely is. And I I do have a little bit of information about that. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Also, someone asked about tanning rabbit hides. And I'll talk a little bit about that and see what else. I'll also have a, a, a question I rather enjoy because it's something really kind of outside of the, norm, uh, the normal homesteading question. And that was, um, about what software I use to do all my, and the words they used were techie stuff. <laughs> so, you know, like videos and podcasting and things like that. So I'll answer that question. And then I just have a question about someone wants a, a picture of what it looks like to be further along in the homesteading journey. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So looking forward to answering all these questions. But before I get into that, I just wanted to tell you, it's been a real busy weekend around here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had told you that our dog that we'd had for a long time—he had—he uh, got pretty old and got real sick and passed away, and and we were debating on whether to get another dog or not. and We'd kind of decided, well, we'll just see if one happens to fall into our laps. We'll we'll maybe get another one, but let's not go looking for one. And you know, one just kind of fell into our laps. Uh, some folks needed a home for a dog, and he, it was a pretty desperate situation, and. And, uh, she's a good little dog, you know, and it's been kind of fun this weekend. We've had to, we have a puppy door, uh, in our back door. And they kind of run the backyard and we have a fenced in backyard and, and, um, I had to be training her to use that. And she's two years old. She's not a puppy. So, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge teaching her how to use that. And then, uh, also she's got sight of the rabbits and the quail and she's wanting to bark at those a little bit. And one thing that kind of scared me is I have a little decorative backyard pond, a fairly decent sized little pond, you know, for a backyard and, uh, it's frozen over, but we've had some pretty warm weather lately and it just froze over here recently. And it's only got about a half of inch of ice on it. And she keeps running across that pond and it's kind of scared me. So I actually had to just, she just kept doing it and kept doing it. And I couldn't get her to quit. So I had to lay something over that, uh, to get her to quit doing that. Cause I was afraid she was going to tumble in when I wasn't looking. And, uh, but, you know, once it thaws out, I'll be able to stick her paws in it and show her, hey, you don't want to get in there. So anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, just a lot of little things you got to teach a new dog. But I think she's she's real smart. She's already learned how to use the puppy door. And and I think it's going to work out real good. She's a real good dog, and we're going to enjoy having her around. So let's just jump right into the, uh, the Q&A questions for today. The first question comes from Helen. She says, I'd love to hear your seed starting tips. I'll be starting to sow seed for the season in mid-February, so it's coming up fast. My soil is heavy clay, and our season is relatively short, so I prefer to start seeds in trays, pots, even guttering. What are your favorite methods, or does it depend on the crop? Well, it kind of does depend on the crop, because there's a lot of things I don't start at all. I direct sow. Uh, Any kind of leafy green, I pretty much direct sow. Uh, Root vegetables, I direct sow, meaning I just put them straight in the garden. I don't start those early, but I do start my tomatoes and my uh, green peppers, all my peppers, uh, eggplant. There's a lot of stuff I, I, I start, and I generally start about uh, I, I, go to my last frost date, my, my average last frost date, and I actually back up about five weeks. Now I let my plants get about six weeks cause I don't put them in the garden until about a week after the average last frost date, because I have had some bad luck with that in the past. So I back up about five weeks and that's when I, uh, start planting the seeds in and, uh, trays. And what I use are these six cell um, trays, the little trays you get. And I'll put links to everything I'm talking about today in the show notes. You can find those show notes, uh, by the way, at uh, smalltownhomestead.com forward slash 54. And anyway, I get these, uh, The there's all different sizes of these trays, but you know, of course the bigger they are, the, uh, the, uh, the cells are, the less number in the tray. So the six cell is about the size I like to use and they have a four cell. They have, you can get them up to a hundred cell for the real little uh, seedlings. You can grow, just get stuff barely started, but I get the six cell and, um, they're not expensive. You can get like, I don't know, 24 of those trays for like seven or eight bucks. Uh, you, like I said, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can look at that if you want. And I like to start them in those and I go back about five weeks. So I'll let them get about six weeks in those. And then they're pretty good size. They'll get a little bit root bound, which is good. Cause when you pull them out, all the soils together. Um, now I have, if I go any longer than that, if they look like they're getting bigger, I might transplant them into some, uh, um, two inch pots, uh, peat moss pots and, uh, that works real well too, but I'll use those. I will use organic seed starter potting mix and not a standard potting mix, um, because that seed starter has just a little more nutrients for the seed start it. It's better for the moisture situation and things like that. And I don't use soil straight out of my garden. Uh, there was a time when I did that, I would just bring this got my garden beds and just, you know, scoop up a gallon or so of soil, and bring that out and use that to pack these. But uh, if you've got any kind of aphids in your dirt, they'll kind of come back to life, and they'll be all over those. So I don't do that anymore because you will bring the aphids back in with you, and they'll they'll start chewing up those plants as soon as they start growing. Now I you need three things uh, to to get your seeds going, and that's you need the the a certain temperature, and you need of course light, and uh, you need uh, moisture. So in the past, it's been kind of funny because, well, originally I started out, you know, my kitchen table's facing uh, some south-facing uh, windows right there, so it would get good sunlight all day. It didn't make my wife very happy to have the the uh, seedlings sitting all over the kitchen table, but uh, that's how I used to do it. Well, then I bought myself one of those little uh, portable. It's kind of a four-shelf unit, and it has the, a little greenhouse over it. It's just uh, it's just wrapped in a, a plastic. A clear plastic. And it and worked out really well too. I think I paid about 40 something bucks for that and it could roll around. And uh, I would use that to uh, set my trays on. And that worked out really good also. Now this year, for the first time this spring, I'm going to have my greenhouse. So everything will be getting started out there. So I'm excited about that. But that's just basically the method you're going to need good light if you don't have good light you're going to have to use good artificial light and i did a podcast on that a while back and you can look that up. i'll have the link to that in the, in the show notes it was on indoor garden lighting and um what lights to use and i go all, all, all over what you're going to look for in a, in a bulb for that i go over uh the different uh uh lumens, the different uh, Kelvin ratings you need on that. And, um, you know, the kind of lights you probably want. Now I, at the time I'd kind of narrowed down on the, uh, the fluorescence. There are other good options. I mean, there's some good led grow lights out there now and they're getting more affordable every day. So you have to look into that, that, that podcast there though, talks at all about the, the fluorescence. They were my choice at the time. They were the most affordable and and they did the trick just fine. So, And I had a nice little uh, setup in my basement for that where I would actually grow. I wasn't using it just for seed starting. I would use it for uh, actually growing some leafy greens in the wintertime just so I could have some lettuce and some kale and things like that in the winter. So uh, that's what I had it set up for. Again, I'm doing all that in the greenhouse now, so I don't really need that. But that's kind of what I go through now as far as getting them started. What you don't put enough, people don't put enough thought into is though, is the hardening off. There is a hardening off process before you just go putting those into the uh, ground. This is where a lot of people lose their plants is because they don't harden them off properly. Now, what I like to do is I like to take it over about a week and the first day I'll set it in the shade for a couple, take my plants outside and kind of set them in the shade on a nice warm day. Um, Set them in the shade for a couple hours then I bring them back in and then the next day I'll maybe go out for about three or four hours in the shade and then I'll start introducing some sunlight to them. I'll give them in some, get them in some light, partial sunlight, maybe half of that time for about three hours, four hours, maybe. And I just increase it an hour each day until the end of the week. And then they're ready to go in and I just get that sunlight on them gradually and slowly. And even when you're in your house, you might want to take your hand and just kind of brush over them and kind of move them a little bit, keep the plants moving. Or put a small fan on. I'm just kind of moving some air across them off and on. And that'll help strengthen the plants and get them ready for being outside. Because if you just plunge them into that outdoor environment uh, with harsh sunlight and uh, wind, they're going to die. I mean, I've lost I've lost a few in the past from that. And I'm, I definitely take my care and time in uh, hardening off those, uh, those plants a lot better now. So that's something you have to do when you're going to plant your seedlings indoors before you trans to transplant them outside you can't just go direct from one to the other it'll shock them and more than likely kill most of them that's about all i really have on that it's 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 a lot of fun uh, i'll put a link into in the show notes of a place where you can find your average last frost date uh, it's the farmer's almanac uh, website might just be for the united states i can't remember if it has any other places on there but you probably know uh, where to look for your uh, average frost date wherever you are but that link will be in the show notes On to the next question. Uh, I have some finished... uh, Danny asks, I have some finished compost ready to be added to the garden. I've read a lot of articles on making compost. I've read a lot of articles on finishing compost. I've I've never had anyone write an article on when to add compost. So when and how do you add compost to a raised bed garden? I like this question. And you know what? You're right. You don't see a lot about that written. And... Uh, I haven't talked about it before, I don't think. Maybe I've mentioned it in passing a couple times here and there. Cause I do some different things. Uh I I did notice a couple places suggested that you add it in the fall and in the spring, or just in the fall, or just in the spring. I generally add my compost in early spring. Now, this is kind of gonna tie in with the last question because here's what I do. I generally like to add the compost a couple weeks before I plant everything in my garden in the spring. What I'll do is, again, I backed up five weeks, right? So at about three weeks for that stuff sitting on my table or sitting in my greenhouse, getting ready to transplant, I got a couple weeks left, two, three weeks left, maybe four weeks into it. I'll put about four or five inches of compost all over my uh, raised beds. And then what I do is I've got this, uh, pitchfork and it's not a, like a hay fork. It's, it's got a little bit wider. It's a small pitchfork, but it's got wider, uh, forks on it. I don't know. Maybe they're about an inch wide and there's like five of them and I don't know what it's called. I, I like it for this though. It's pretty straight. It's got a little curve to it, but it's mostly straight and I'll spread that all over and then I'll go and I'll just poke that down into the raised bed do the compost into the into the soil beneath it, and I'll just kind of wiggle that. And I go about every six inches back and forth down that bed, and I just kind of create some holes. And I kind of wiggle it around, and I give it, give it a place for that compost to kind of work down into those holes. Now, I don't do anything else to it. I don't turn the soil or anything like that. I just kind of poke those holes in it and wiggle it just a little bit, and I go up and down the beds doing that. And it takes a little bit. Uh, with all the raised beds I have, it, it takes an hour or so for me just going through there doing that. Uh, I get all that done, and then I don't do anything else to it It's gonna rain you're gonna have some bugs working that soil a little bit, and then when I plant the plants in there in two or three weeks, the roots as they grow are even gonna pull some of that that nutrient down in there. So spring is the time when I do it, but I don't do it like right before i'm going to plant I do it you know a couple two to three weeks before I'm gonna plant. However, I don't not do anything in the fall uh, I do generally cover my um raised beds with uh, leaves in the uh, fall. Um, I take uh, just, I gather up all the leaves off the property and sometimes I get them from another person's property that I know they don't do any treating or anything. Rake all those up in some bags and I'll lay, I'll lay uh, leaves about a foot thick on my garden beds. And it's amazing by the time spring comes around, it's almost all gone. It's almost all turned into soil. It really has. You might have just a little bit on there and if there's a little bit left on there, I just put the compost right on top of that and I don't worry about it it works really well. And that gives me some really good nutrient dense soil for my garden. Uh, now if I've got stuff in container gardens and I'll go ahead and mention this, I do routinely add a handful of compost in my containers. If I'm doing some container gardening, uh, because they just don't get the nutrient and the, the, uh, the insect and, and, and works and, and things like that. And the, you know, there's not as many worms and things like that in the soil to really do any good for it. So I try to add, I'll either add, um, uh, Uh, worm castings or just a little bit of uh, compost, just finished compost or something like that to my potted plants. Maybe every couple weeks, I'll throw a handful in there or something, just kind of working around the plant. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, I know there's probably people that would say, oh, we do it this way. This is a better way. They might be right. This works really well for me. It might be a better way to do it, but you ask how I do it. That's how I do it. Okay. Next question. Lori asks, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on health insurance for a family with kids that is self-employed. I've listened, she goes on to say, I've listened to many of your podcasts recently that deal with income generating ideas for self-employment, but that but that side of it was untouched. I've done some research on the matter, but I'm always interested in hearing more firsthand experience with this side of self-employment. Uh, I'll just say this, I'm not a full-time homesteader. So uh, insurance as a homesteader or farmer is not something that I've had to face. That being said, though, I was self-employed for several years, uh, with a trucking company. I had my own trucking company and I did have to carry my own insurance. And, um, you yeah, I know things have changed a lot, but a lot of things are still the same too. Uh, back, and this has been 12 years ago since I had my own business, but, uh, we did have insurance. I didn't always have insurance. The first four or five years of doing that. We actually took a big chance. We had three kids at home and we didn't have any insurance. So uh, we took some chances on that, but then finally gave in and spent a lot of money on insurance. Uh, I'm going to talk about some options. One is if you're making enough money, buy insurance. I mean, there it's, I think we were paying over $700 a month for family insurance and it was a decent insurance. And that was, like I said, 12 years ago, I'm sure it's higher now. That's an option. Uh, but being a farm or a homestead, if it is your full-time thing and you have no other options for insurance, yeah, healthcare.gov <laughs> might be a place you want to look at. And I mentioned that because with the way things are currently, and I'm sure that's going to be changing with the new uh, presidential administration. And I'm not even, I, I mean, I'm not in support of government Healthcare or government assisted health care, but while it's an option, it can be a lot cheaper because as a homesteader, the thing is, you're going to be making some money, but you're going to be spending a lot of money too. And in the end, you're not going to be showing a lot of profit. Uh, in the end, um, so generally, you can get a pretty inexpensive insurance, you know, at that at the taxpayer's expense, I'd say, but you're going to be paying taxes. These are taxes you've paid. And I say, if you can get some of it back by taking a government advantage on that, if that's, if that's what you can do, I would do it. Now, that being said, if that's something you're just, you don't want to do, or it isn't going to work for you, I'll tell you a couple other options. Um, something that, something that we did, well, we looked into, and I actually have some friends who are doing it. Uh, I was actually a pastor for a couple years at a small Baptist church now I was also working full-time so I didn't have to uh, have the insurance the church provide me insurance but there are what's called these uh, medical share um, companies and one that that I know a lot of people that are a part of is called metashare and it's a Christian organization and that I think that's one of their stipulations I don't know if you I guess you don't have to be a Christian to use it. I'm not sure what their rules are on that, but it's basically a medical share uh, thing. And I won't go into all the details for it. I will put a link to it in the show notes, but there's also another one called Liberty Health Share, and they're both similar. They both have a lot of benefits, and basically you pay in, and when you have a medical problem, everybody's footing the bill for you. Um, Everybody's paying each other because you're paying into this this pool sort of. And then out of that pool is basically paying everybody's medical expenses. Um, it works. I know a lot of people that are happy with it, but you also have to consider what insurance is for. Insurance is really for those things. You just, you can't really afford. I mean, if you're going to use it for every, you know, $30 expense, that's really not what insurance is for. Insurance is for those big things that you just get in a mess and you, you can't afford it. So, Um, that's, that's what insurance is. It's, you know, I can't cover this. So I'm taking on insurance that will help me cover it. And we've come to look at insurance a little bit different, I think. And, and keep that in mind when you're, when you're looking at, if you're going to pay straight out for, from a company, an insurance company, you know, if you increase your deductibles, increase your co-pays, things like that, it'll be cheaper. So, while you may come out of pocket with a lot of stuff at doctor's visits and things like that, you know, your monthly, your monthly payment's going to be cheaper. And like I said, that's really what insurance is for. So you just have to think about all those things, but I would look at Liberty health share. I would look at uh MetaShare, um, go to healthcare.gov. And I have links for all these things in the, uh, in the show notes and you can just uh, click on those and check them out. And there's a lot of good, inf- good information there. I tell you what, the healthcare.gov, um, there's a lot of good information there. Uh, and it's one, there's a section of it that's just for self-employed coverage. And I've got that, I've got that link in the show notes. So, uh, it'd be easier just to go there and go straight to it from there. Um, you've done a little bit of homework, so you know, probably as much as I do about it, the way it's working nowadays. But you know, from my perspective from a few years ago, I'm glad I had it. Uh, when I did, it was, we ended up, uh, needing it. So, uh, I definitely say have it. I think it's a. It's a good policy to have that. I think it's an act of preparedness to have it, at least to cover, you know, large expenses if something bad happens. Because, you know what, the reality is bad things happen. And, you know, I was a guy who thought nothing bad was going to happen to me because I was always pretty fit and pretty healthy. And you know what, uh, you know, when you get cancer, you kind of have a different outlook on those things. So, yeah, don't, I wouldn't. I mean, it's right now, it's not even an option to go without insurance uh, as far as you will be fined by the U S government for it. But, um, you know, I think that's probably going to change, but I don't think it's a good idea to not have it anyway, at least a, a large deductible insurance. So that's my thoughts on that. Uh, go to the show notes and, uh, check out some of the information. Next question. Uh, Jesse asks, have you ever done any hide tanning with your rabbit? Uh, rabbits pelts. If so, can you give us some tips? Uh, Well, Jesse, I have. (laughs) I've done, I have tanned uh, seven hides in my life. Uh, One deer hide, one raccoon hide, and five rabbit pelts. And I probably wouldn't do rabbit pelts again. I probably would do uh, deer hide uh, again. But I'll, I'll just tell you why. I don't think it's cost effective. But that being said, if you've got a use for them, and you want to tan them, I think it's great to know how to do it, and if you got a use for them, that's great, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not an expert in it. Uh, you would probably be able to get this information through a Google search that I'm going to give you, but to make it easy, if you haven't uh, searched for it, I did put links. I'm going to talk about four methods briefly, um, four methods of tanning hides, rabbit pelts, that is. Not all these methods will work on all hides, but for tanning rabbit pelts, uh there's four me- uh, methods I'm going to mention and I've only done one of them um the one I have done is done with uh, aluminum sulfate it's alum tanning it's an alum, alum tanning, tanning method aluminum sulfate and it's relatively easy it works pretty good it's a mild chemical i mean it's actually a garden amendment a soil amendment that you can put in your garden so it's not a real dangerous chemical or anything that being said it's a chemical so when you're using it and you're mixing it in with your water and your, your salt and that don't keep it out away from children, keep it away from pets. Uh, it can cause harm. Uh, so just be careful with it. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes, uh, to the article that I believe it's the article I used a couple years ago when I done it. Uh, at least the method's the same because I had looked it up through a Google search, found this article and done it this way. Because I just thought it looked like it was the easiest and, and best method to, to use. So I use the Allen uh, tanning method. And I'll put a link to that, like I said, in the show notes. Also, I'm going to have a link to where you can buy some aluminum sulfate in a 10 pound bag. It's really not expensive and it's, uh, it, it works good. Um, you're going to need some uh, salt, not iodinized salt, but you're going to need uh, like a canning salt water. The hides and the aluminum sulfate—that's all it takes. And it's—it's it's, like I said, it's—it's it's kind of a long, drawn-out system. You, you have to soak them, you have to pull them out, you have to take the the fat off of them, you have to dry them, you have to re-soak them for several days. Then you ha- you squeeze them out, and then you hang them and you dry them. Then you got to work them, and it's just—it's a, a long process for what you get for, for it being a rabbit pill. And like I said, I did five of them at one time. A five gallon bucket is really all you need for all that, but it's relatively easy. It's just kind of long and drawn out a little bit of work for what, for the end product. But like I said, if you've got a purpose for them, by all means do it. I think it's great to know how to do it. Let's put it that way. Um, couple other, three other methods I want to talk about. One, another one is a battery acid tanning method. And surprisingly, a lot of people use this method using battery acid. Now, battery acid can be purchased at a um, uh, auto parts store. Uh, Battery acid sounds scarier than it is, but again, it is acid. So, of course, you have to use gloves and be real careful with it. Now, get it in your eyes, wear some uh, safety goggles and gloves and things like that. Um, but I don't recommend that method. It's, it's a little more dangerous than using the aluminum sulfate. I wouldn't do it, but I have a link in the show notes, uh, to an article on d- using battery acid. Um, another method is called egg yolk tanning method. And yes, you use egg yolks to, to tan hides. Now I have heard that there's kind of a high failure rate on this. Like sometimes the type that the, the the hides don't tan using the egg, yolk, egg yolk method. So, you know, I've got a, I've got an article uh, linked in the show notes for that. It basically is the same process. You're just using eggs instead of the aluminum sulfate. It, you, you're going to work that into the, uh, you're going to leave that setting on the, um, you won't be soaking it in the water necessarily. You just be leaving it, you just kind of smear it all over the the inside of the hide and, and let that set now the other way is done kind of the same way the brain tanning method and this is kind of the old school way of doing it this is the the old timer's way of doing it they would use the brains of the animal or a lot of people would just use calf or cow brains to tan the hides now i had thought about doing it that way um when i tanned my behind but i don't know messing with brains is I, i'm not a real squeamish guy but it's a little gross <laughs> you know you're basically going to turn those brains into Uh, a soupy uh, substance and smear that around on the, um, on the hides. It's, it's a little gross, but you know what? I mean, a lot of stuff we do is gross. I mean, you just butchering an animal can be pretty gross, but uh, I mean, I could handle it, but you know, it's gonna have a little bit of smell to it. It's gonna, uh, you know, but it's the old school way. I mean, if you look in some of the old books and things, this is how they did it. And, um, you know, so if you want to learn that way, I think it's a good thing to learn to know how to brain tan so I have a link to that also in the show notes. So there, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I'm not real experienced, and you're going to get just as probably better information uh, reading those uh, those articles than we will me talking about. Now, you asked, do you have any tips? Now, here's the tip that none of those articles I don't think mention, and that you say you want to use your rabbits that you're raising for meat and save their hides. Well. I here's the problem I have with that because what I find is I like to if I'm raising my rabbits for meat, I like to butcher them young because it's you have less money in that meat. And you really can't use the hides on them young ones. The, the the hide is so thin that they're really almost useless for tanning. That being said, you're going to have your older rabbits, your breeders and your older bucks that you're using for breeding. Now if you say you've had those for 2 or 3 years, those are going to be great for tanning. Uh, which is what I did. I had some older ones that I used for tanning. Um, but you don't, you know you think well that's a lot of wasted hides when you're butchering them young. Well, you know if I'm butchering my rabbits at 10 or 12 weeks, them hides are not good, really, I don't think. In my opinion, they're not that great for tanning. You really want an older rabbit for that. So that's just a, a tip I have because you when you're trying to scrape, they're gonna tear real easy when you're trying to get that uh, fat off of them. And you're just going to be really thin uh, compared to an older rabbit. So my suggestion is uh, just as you replace your breeders and they're older, a couple year old rabbits or something, use those to, the, to tan. And just, you know, I compost the, the old, uh, the pelts off of the uh, younger rabbits. So that's what I do with those. There's my tip. <laughs> use your older rabbits for tanning. You're going to have a higher success rate. You're going to be a lot happier with the hide. Okay. Next question. Amy asks, I want to start sharing our homesteading experiences like you do. Would you mind sharing what software you use for the techie stuff like blogging, YouTube videos, podcasting, and picture editing? I have no problem sharing that, Amy. Um, I am a cheapskate, so you're probably going to like what I've got to say. <laughs> uh, first of all, the only thing I'm going to mention that I actually pay for is my hosting for my uh, website. I do pay for hosting for the website. You, there are free options for that, but... I don't like to go with the free options. Um, you get a longer domain name for one thing. You there's ways around that, but you're just limited on what you can do with the uh, the free website hosting. So I do go through Bluehost. Um, there might be better ones out there. I've got a link in the show notes to, to Bluehost because uh, that's what I'm using right now. Um, but I will say this: the bigger your your traffic, the, the higher your traffic gets on a share hosting. Um, you're you're gonna start running into some trouble. It's not something you got to worry about. I've been doing it for a couple years, and I've not really ran into trouble yet. But I'm getting close to probably having some trouble with my traffic. So, uh, but it costs you a lot more if you're gonna go another way. But start out with like Bluehost or HostGator. You know, some shared hosting service. It's really inexpensive, a few bucks a month, and you're gonna want to install the WordPress platform and you're going to want to run WordPress. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details on that, but you, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there that will teach you WordPress, teach you how to set up WordPress. It's so easy once you figure it out to just run a blog. Okay. For my images, every image I make, if I'm putting it at the top of my blog post, if I'm making images for Pinterest, if I'm making images for my Facebook page or my uh, uh a Twitter account or banner headers for YouTube or anything like that, I use a free uh, online uh, program called Canva, canva.com. All these links, again, are in the show notes, so you can check them out. Uh, go to Canva, and it's free. And there are things you can buy there. You can buy backgrounds. You can buy pictures. But if you take a lot of your own pictures around your homestead, and you can upload them into the uh, pre-made Templates at Canva. It's real easy. It makes some nice looking pictures and it's free, which is what I love. Um, For my podcast, I edit my podcast, I record it and edit it in a program called Audacity. Audacity is, you guessed it, free. Um, and I think it does a good job. A lot of people don't like it. Uh, I, I like it. It does a really good editing process. I think it comes out in the end. I think the, the final cut is pretty good. I mean, I think the sound quality is good. It, it's only going to be as good as the, um, the hardware. You know, if you've got a not a good mic, you're not going to have a good sound. in Audacity, that really doesn't have anything to do with it. But um, Audacity does a good job for uh, editing audio. As far as my videos, oh, I wanted to say about this. About uh, I didn't even have this in my notes. Um, when I'm doing Skype interviews, though, I use – a lot of people will use something like Pamela or whatever that. But I I, I call everybody on their phone mostly. Sometimes I do Skype to Skype but when I'm doing an interview. Well, there's a thing called MP3 – let me just look it up on my computer. I can't remember what it's called now all of a sudden. It's called MP3 Skype Recorder. It's a free program. And so many people pay for programs. I've never had that MP3 Skype Recorder program fail me. Uh, it's always recorded my my Skype calls, and, uh, and it records them as an MP3. And then I just drag that MP3 into Audacity, and I add my other stuff to it. And that's how I do it. Again, a free program. Um, so I'm, I'm really big on the free stuff when I can use. I have a few paid things, but you know these are the things i use the most and they're all free uh, for youtube now when i'm doing my live videos and even recently even doing some of my recorded stuff uh, i load it up into it and play it and rework it in a piece of software called OBS Studio and that stands for let me just kick that up what does it stand for open broadcaster software and it's an open source it's an open source software And I really just started using that recently, and I really like it, and it's free. So a little bit of a learning curve on it, but here's the thing. Go to YouTube, type it in, uh, how to use OBS Studio, and guess what? There's a lot of videos on how to use it and how to set it up and what you can do with it. And I haven't even really started to scratch the surface on the things you can do with that program. It does some really, really good stuff. So um, I have links for all the stuff in the show notes. Check it out. And I hope that those that little bit of software right there uh, will make a big difference for you and help you, uh, you know, get started sharing your homesteading experiences. And I think a lot of homesteaders should do that. I mean, for one, it gives you a log of what you've done and, and and just things you can look back on, which is really cool to do, having your own blog and having your, you know, YouTube videos. And, hey, if you're wanting to start a podcast, I think that's awesome too. Uh, there's not that many homesteading podcasts out there and uh I don't look at anything like this as competition. I I I love homesteading so much and I think that homesteading can make such a difference in the world that I hope that there's 50 of you out there that'll start a podcast, start YouTube channels, start your, you know, a blog. A lot more of you start blogs even, um because I enjoy looking and reading and listening and watching all that stuff myself. So, uh yeah, if anybody needs any help with things like that, I'm more than happy to help. And even more than happy to promote what you're doing um, if it's uh, decent stuff. So, yeah, uh, it's a good, good question. Happy to answer it. Uh, and finally, Aaron asks, uh, I kind of laugh at this question because, uh, well, I'll read it. Uh, Aaron asks, give us a picture of what it looks like further along the homestead journey. And uh, Aaron, here's the thing. It looks the same as it did when I started pretty much. <laughs> and uh, Maybe I'm not that far along yet. I'm a few years into it, but here's the thing i'm I'm not doing probably a tenth of the stuff I want to do and i'm I'm constantly adding things I'm constantly changing things and 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 staying busy doing the things I've been doing and learning things and and it's it, which I like I don't know that it'll ever look different than when I first started because i I just like that I like to learn new things I like to try new things I like to add new things to my homestead and I like to just push the envelope and just see how far I can go with things and what I can do. And, and I like to experiment and try new things. And yeah, there's times of relaxation when I just kick back because the garden's doing good. The animals are fed and I just kick back and relax. But to be honest with you, I did that in the beginning too. I mean, I didn't work from sun up to sundown every day. I mean, I took breaks you know, and it doesn't look a lot different and I'm not so sure it ever will. And and I don't know, uh, maybe you'll have to ask a more experienced homesteader, somebody that's been doing this, you know, their whole life. I know I grew up on a homestead, you know, and, and, and my dad, uh, this, the way I do things now, the way when I started, it looks the same as when I was growing up, I mean, my dad worked hard. He was, you know, we feeding the animals every day. was adding new things to the homestead. We was planting trees or increasing the size of the garden or, you know, canning. And I mean, just everything kind of looked the same. And, uh, yeah, it's a busy lifestyle, but it's enjoyable. And, um, uh, you know what? I'm one of those guys that I'm just as happy. I'm just as happy out working in my garden or tending to the animals as I am sitting on the front porch with some iced tea in my hand. I mean, I like doing both but I'm just as happy doing both, you know? So it doesn't really make any difference to me. I, I enjoy it. So there you go. I mean, uh, I don't say it's a good question, you know, I mean, what do you have to look forward to on down the road? Well, a lot of the same in my case, but maybe not for you. Uh, but I guess that's going to be different for everybody. So there's your questions. Hey, I did have a question, uh, pertaining to my dog that maybe somebody else is interested in this. Um, and this one didn't get sent to the uh, for the for the podcast, but I thought it was a good question. I was talking about how I had to train our new dog not to bark at the animals, and you might have heard her barking a little bit ago outside. I just heard her, and I didn't go out there to stop it or anything. But um, he was asking, "Well, how do you?" A couple of people asked me, Well, how do you stop the dog from barking at the animals?" And we have this little um, oh man, I can't even remember what I call it, what it's called now. I don't have it weird with me, but it's this little device, and you, it's got a button on it. And it it emits a high-frequency sound, and it, they just don't like it. And But you have to be you know, fairly close to them when you use it. and It kind of hurts their ears a little bit, and it'll shut them up, and they'll usually take off running in the house or running away or whatever. But they start getting the message after a while. When they start barking, you push that. And they shut up and they kind of run or whatever and get away from it. And a few times of that, and they just don't do it anymore. So we've been training her not to bark at the animals using that. So, uh, it worked on our last dog and I suspect it'll work on this one too. Cause she's already not barking as much as she was. So, um, you guys got to stay on top of it and, uh, you know, push that button. So I just want to throw that out there too. I thought it was a good question that somebody asked uh, earlier when I was talking about my dog in the homestead front porch. If you are not a member of our Homestead Front Porch Facebook group, you really, really ought to be. We have a lot of fun in there. We have some good discussions. It's a great community of people helping one another. I I, I encourage you to join the Homestead Front Porch Facebook group. Just search uh, in Facebook for it. And, uh, it's a closed group, but all you have to do to join is ask and we'll get you right in there. So, uh, look forward to seeing you and talking to you in the homestead front porch. Also, if in the future you want to, uh, ask a question for our next Q and a show, I don't know when that'll be. I know I got an interview next week and, um, I have maybe a standalone show coming up after that, but then might have another Q and a show. Um, there's several ways you can do that. You can, uh, join the homestead front porch and keep an eye out for when I post uh, post in there about wanting some questions. Or you can just send your questions anytime to sthomestead at gmail.com. That's our email for the podcast here. sthomestead for small town homestead. sthomestead at gmail.com. Or you can actually call in and leave a voicemail. And I'd love to get more of those. You can call in to 765-203-1949. That's 765 two zero three one nine four nine that's just a you're just going to hear leave a message and a beep and and it's not you don't even know who you're talking to necessarily but it's it's the voicemail for this podcast leave your uh question or comment in there and if i can use it on the show i will uh i would love to have more of that especially on the q a episodes um play play a few questions and have you guys actually asking your question on the podcast so Uh, I think that about wraps it up for the day. I appreciate you listening today. And uh, as usual, I want to bid you happy homesteading and God bless. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow.